In the beginning of the history of experimental observation or any other kind of observation on scientific things, it's intuition. It's intuition. Which is really based on just experience with everyday objects that suggest reasonable explanations for things. Welcome to Two Shrinks Pod. I'm Amy Donaldson. And I'm Hunter Mulcair. Today we're finishing up our series on COVID. We've done four episodes so far. The first two have been about anxiety. The third was an interview with Dr. Sherman Lee from the United States about COVID-related anxiety. And then the fourth was an episode on coping with mental health conditions during COVID. Today we want to talk about health professionals and how they're coping at the moment. We expected that at this point there'd be much more of a crisis in Australia medically, where heavy restrictions, large numbers of cases and considerable pressure on the medical system was going on. What we've actually got is that there are fewer cases than what we expected and restrictions are being lifted. As of recording today on the 16th of May, worldwide there were 90,000 new cases, but in Australia there were 17 new cases. We have 568 active cases at the moment. So restrictions are being eased and the challenges for healthcare workers here are slightly different to what we expected and what's happening overseas. We've noticed that a lot of the focus in the media and when people talk about health professionals is on praising healthcare workers, saying you guys are amazing, rather than acknowledging how hard it is to be working in that environment in a crisis and even when you're not in a crisis and you're waiting to see what might happen. We think that healthcare workers are wanting to be able to talk about how hard it is and so we wanted to explore some of the issues. We don't want this to be a trite episode, a trite, you know, look after yourself and make sure you have a lunch break and make sure you have a cup of tea because realistically that because that doesn't match the reality of workers on the ground even at the best of times before the pandemic around self-care and the ability to self-care within a hospital or a medical system. So Amy and I did a bunch of brainstorming around some of the issues that we have come up against ourselves as clinicians and in talking to people. And then also we contacted a number of doctors and picked their brains around some of the issues. So we got some help from Dr. Vayam Sharma, a GP who is a medical host on Triple R's radiotherapy program. I also used to graveyard on Triple R. <laughs> Did you know that? Um, yes. Dr. Andy Tagg, who's an emergency physician with a specialist interest in pediatrics. Uh, he's part of the Don't Forget the Bubbles team. They do a podcast called Don't Forget the Bubbles, and they also run a medical blog, which apparently he was messaging me and telling me that the WHO have picked up some of their recommendations, nice. which is pretty cool. Dr. Eric Levi also, he's a consultant, ear, nose and throat surgeon. And also Dr. Lockie Hayes, he's a senior haematologist. So we got their ideas about some of the issues that have come up. So what we're going to do for this episode is we are going to, like the other episodes we've done, keep with the chatty vibe. We're going to ask each other questions and then discuss our response to it and basically just give our two cents about how we think people can or might be able to deal with these issues. So before we get started, of course, we'd like you to rate and review the show. If you like the show, uh, you can contact us at twoshrinkspod at gmail.com or at twoshrinkspod on Twitter. If you want to give us some feedback, have some thoughts, have some questions, but the rating reviewing of the show on Apple Podcasts is really, really helpful or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like the show and you found it useful, please tell someone about it or link it to your social media, that kind of thing. So shall we get started? How about I kick us off? Yep. 
We've noticed pretty consistently we've heard that people are worried about access to PPE or personal protective equipment and worry about their own risk, which for a lot of healthcare workers, particularly the ones who aren't medical staff, this is a new worry. How do you respond to that? Yeah, I think it's pretty interesting. I I work in oncology. You can't catch cancer. Mm. And so to go to work, and I remember sort of in the first couple of days I went to work during the pandemic, it was like I'm driving to work in a global pandemic. Mm. And it was sort of an interesting thought process for me where I don't have really exposure to infectious diseases. About the most exposure I've had to infectious diseases have been going to review a patient on the board and having to gown up because they've got you know immunity uh no they've got like diarrhea oh right (laughs) like you know that they've got some kind of infection Hmm. that's related this is kind of quite a common occurrence but you know if you got that it'll be a nuisance versus you know i've certainly had moments before i kind of got comfortable about going to the hospital and understanding what protocols procedures they have Mm -hmm. that was a little bit nerve-wracking and we've got face shields where I work. So like it's clear plastic face shields so that we can wear when we're with patients. But we've reduced, we've reduced our patient-facing contact mm. to bare minimum. But for face-to-face workers, people who are on the wards a lot, it's very, very different. And I think the crush is not on here in Australia, so we haven't had that pressure. Mm. So I don't quite know how what that would look like if we suddenly were under pressure around personal protective equipment. Mm. But it's this new experience where you go to work and you're like, hang on, am I safe here? I think it's been changing a bit over time as well because when it first hit, I can remember hearing from a couple of doctors who were working in intensive care units who were saying that they were being asked to change their PPE less regularly than what they normally would to try and reduce going through as much. Yep. Whereas now we've had a bit more time to build up stores and so I think it's a little bit easier. Yep. But it sounds like overseas the the case is still the same where people are having to reuse things when they wouldn't normally. Yeah, I, mean, the, like that. I contact from a GP friend of mine running a practice and she was saying, this is in the early stages, she was very anxious about trying to source PPE for her clinic. Mm. And so... You know, I think, I think really that anxiety is around your own safety. And then I think also making sure that you then don't transmit it to other people. Because if, if your clinic goes down, then everyone else's. I think so. There's, you can start to get into real catastrophic thinking where perhaps if you did get sick, whether all those catastrophic consequences necessarily would happen. Not sure about that. Hmm. I think what's interesting about this sort of situation is that you as a worker whether you're a psychologist, a doctor, nurse, someone else in allied health, that you're going through the same thing that everyone else is going through. What's that been like for you? And what do you think and how do you think people are coping with that? It's been really different because certainly in psychology, you know, you'll have times where you have a client or you have a bunch of clients who come in and happen to have the same issues that might have been something that's popped up for you in the past or or currently but you never have your entire caseload worried about something that you're going through as well it it just doesn't happen and I think at the moment that's what's happening day to day there are clients who are saying things like you know I just want to be able to get out of the house or I feel disconnected from people or I'm bored and internally I'm thinking yeah I've got days like that too 
where mm. it really feels like that. So it, it's quite different. And I think part of it for me, I mean, everyone has their own you know, philosophical thing about sharing with clients, but part of it for what my approach has been has been to be honest with kids and teenagers because they have great bullshit detectors. Mm. And if I'm not, they know. And just say, yeah, like it's it's pretty it's pretty shit and it's been a tricky week, you know, with it raining all the time, it's hard when you can't go outside yeah. or, yeah. you know, I've been pretty restless too. And that's helped because I think it also adds into the idea they've got this, I, this picture of me that I'm someone who copes and who is able to help people and engage in the world and stuff like that. And they kind of go, oh, you're having a hard time with it too. We, oh, this must be actually more okay for me to have a tough yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. It kind of normalizes it. Yeah, normalizes it. As you were talking, I was going to say almost exactly the same thing, which is that I found myself being more willing to share mm. my personal experience about that than any other time as I've been as a therapist. Yeah. Because I think to portray that it's not happening is a problem. And I think that a lot of healthcare workers have been having to be honest about that with people mm. because it's such a prevalent concern. And what? I guess the, the thing is, as a psychologist, though, you don't want to flip it to being too much of a focus on, on you or about no. how you're going. So I've noticed that I'm also doing more talking with my colleagues. So my work has a buddy system where we, we have a bit of a, a bitch about how, how we're going or what's bothering us or if we're having a tough day, how many people have Uber Eats lunch for that day because it's a bit of a rough one. And I think there's a bit more venting going on as well yeah. uh, and then usually those conversations end with a bit of a okay what are you going to do to actually move this on a little bit yeah. have you noticed that your patients have been scared and like how do you reassure them when you're wearing a mask and stuff yeah. like that yeah so that's interesting you know i turned up to review a patient on the ward and i was wearing a gown and a my clear plastic face shield and this patient was quite worried about that and they've been worried about being in hospital. They've been recently admitted. Mm. So what's interesting is you had to play the role of reassuring a patient about what's going on, mm -hmm. but then also kind of like internally, it's probably pretty reasonable for this person to be worrying about what's going mm. on and what's my role here. And, you know, I think there's other parallels within psychology and in mental health around being worried about a patient or being doubtful about someone's ability to pull through a medical illness or pull through a psychiatric problem but your role is to be the beam of light mm, the reassuring to thing to hold hope mm. not in a false way mm. in a realistic way and i think i know for me and i think also for medical staff around convincing or reassuring patients it's like well uh yes you've got a tumor and yes we can give you treatment and yes we think we've got the precautions as tight as we can so it's safe for you to come in, but then also acknowledging that it's kind of risky. So what's that been like? Because at the moment here in Australia, there's just been announcements that we will be phasing back in going back to school. Mm. So you're at home yeah. telling the students... Mm -hmm. To go into the world. <laughs> to go into the world. Yeah, it's been a really tricky one because... The younger ones in particular do do a bit of that kind of checking in with me about safety and they have been quite confused about why it is that if they're going to school, why is it that they can't come and see me? 
why am I still at home with my cat on a video screen and not in an office where they'd usually find me. And so I think it's been a little bit about breaking down what it is that they're worried about, about going back to school. And what's been interesting to me is that over time that's shifted a fair bit. So for some of them, they started off with a kids can't get sick. It's not a worry. I just want to get back to school. And then over time, they've heard more news reports about kids getting sick and Mm. starting to worry. Or they've heard reports about kids being able to pass it on to adults and they're worried about their parents. So there's sort of been a bit of a a shifting thing and trying to meet them where they're at and talking about that, yeah, it is scary, but this is what we know. How can we manage what we know? And who has the responsibility for helping keep us safe Mm. in a way that we would with other stuff as well? Breaking it down a bit and going... Yeah, you can't help being in a classroom with X number of students. What stuff can you control? What stuff can you put into place to help with that? And what stuff do we need to talk to mum or dad about because it seems like you're worried about them more than about yourself? Yeah, I think my what's what's interesting, my response to that is us as adults and us as workers in the hospital system, Mm. you know, we're going on the best evidence at the time. Mm. And there is an anxiety around that saying, well, you don't want to say it's perfectly safe. No. Uh, because we don't really know just yet. And that's mm. and you don't want to sound alarmist around that, but that's actually the reality. I mean, this virus is at this point in time, what, six months old? Mm. You know, like it's not, we don't know, you know, people have been studying breast cancer for decades, right? Yeah. And still don't know all of it. Mm. So... And you don't want to be the person who was overly reassuring or said, you know, this isn't an issue for you. Mm. And then something happens and then they come back and go, but you told me that it was going to be fine. Particularly for kids who are concrete. Like, yeah, you want to actually help them work through it and help them figure out what's going on. Yeah, it's really, really complicated, isn't it? Have you had any worry about transmitting illness from work to home or heard people talking about that? Uh, Yeah, Probably not so much now, uh, but I think one of my experiences I had was getting an email about what to do with your work clothes. Mm. And I mean, it was geared for people who were on the wards all the time, but it sort of really starkly conflicted with some of the messages that we were getting about, it's, oh, it's safe to be at work and we've got these protocols. And then it was like, bring a spare set of clothes, change out of them mm. before you get into the car, take them home and wash them in hot wash, that kind of thing. Mm. And, you know, you, you can go and look up those guidelines. Don't take my word for it. Like, yeah. like <laughs> I don't, don't want anyone to follow that strictly. But, you know, so I think there was that sort of instance. And I think what I found was trying to see what was on the ground. Mm. So to, to be cautious initial, initially, in the environment and try and figure out what was the level of risk and really how safe it seemed. Mm. I guess that's subjective in one way, but also objective in another, which is, you know, it's kind of like if you tell someone about aeroplanes and they've never seen aeroplanes before Mm. and they'll ask about crashes, but then, you know, you take people to an airport and you sort of explain to them, well, you know, a lot of this stuff's actually pretty routine. Mm. There's a level of risk, but we're managing it. But then again, I guess the the caveat with that is that you know, we're not in a super crisis situation at the moment. Exactly. And I wonder how that would change. Well, it seems like overseas that there's, I've noticed that there's been far more 
doctors and, and things on Twitter and places like that talking about how difficult it's been that their families had to move out or they've had to move out because they're worried about that kind of exposure. They're having to put in place far more things, the people who are having contact with this every day, which I think is quite different to here. Yep. Where we've got a little bit more separation and probably even just pract- like in a practical sense, we generally have more space. Geographically, Australia geographically, is very spread out, yeah. And our houses are, are bigger and things like that that I wonder whether that makes a bit more of a difference as well, not as much close proximity. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. But I think, you know, I think there is that worry around, okay, and I've certainly had family members who've kind of gone, oh, you know, you work in this area that you're the big hospital in that area and you've had a few cases in that area, what's going on, Mm. whether they're concerned about me or whether, whether they're potentially getting it from me or something. You know, I think... It's a real worry for a lot of people. Mm. And it's one of those ones where it's like you can't really reassure someone. It's just got to get people to have their own system that Mm. they get comfortable with. One of the things I worry about with that is that people get complacent. So people get into work and then they start doing stuff routinely and they go, oh, it's safe. Mm. And when it's not. So the parallel in the non-COVID world is people who work with asbestos mm. so like builders right and so they'll go oh yeah we deal with asbestos all the time it's not dangerous mm. now it is dangerous it's just that the the result of playing with asbestos is only seen decades later right mm. and it's not an immediate yeah it's not the immediate thing and so you can people can be lulled into false sense of security i think it's also got parallels with food handling things like that you i've been noticing it more lately but certainly in the past i've noticed that go somewhere where people behind the counter are wearing gloves and then while wearing the gloves they'll handle both the money and the food and it's this idea that the gloves must be protecting you from risk but actually they're not if you're not using them appropriately yes um and i have seen a few things i saw a video from a nurse the other day that did a example of you know transfer of yeah of germs and things using paint and was obviously really frustrated by how people aren't using masks and gloves and things appropriately and i think we're seeing a lot of that of people thinking i've got gloves on i've got a mask on i must be safe yeah but then doing stuff like you know scratching their face under their mask or or like having the mask below their nose yeah yeah like 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 what are you doing or on Uh, their head like a headband and then putting it down when they talk to people and then sort of moving it all the time. I saw, I saw someone with one of the N95 masks. So mm. there's the surgical masks and then there's the N95 masks. So you only need to use the N95 masks. They're the, the ones that filter the air. Mm. You only need to use those in a medical setting when, when you're disrupting the body fluids, mm. according to the PPE sort training I've had. Aerated. So, yeah, like to so say if you were like performing suction or something, mm. whereas the rest of the time it's like surgical masks. I mean, I guess this is an environment where viral loads are low mm. i'm not a virologist anyway <laughs> going up on the branch there <laughs> but so but yeah i saw someone with one of those masks as i walked past her mm. i could see probably a centimeter gap between her cheek yeah and the mask and it's like you you're not using that properly so yeah yeah so it gives like, a false sense of security yeah so i think that that's that's what people are like you mm. know we get we get lazy we get habituated to something and we go oh well uh, vigilance is hard to maintain absolutely yeah. It's tiring. So when we first thought about this pod, one of the things we 
and a couple of the doctors we contacted had said they were worried about losing patients, worried about having to treat and lose colleagues and having to make these decisions around who lives and who dies if ventilators were in short supply. Mm. Right at the start of the crisis, there was this big like, oh my God, we're going to need this many ventilators if the crisis hits properly. And and at the same rate that it had overseas. Yeah, at the same rate it had overseas. So overseas, that, that was confirmed. That fear wasn't irrational because we were getting these just horrendous stories from Italy around... I remember seeing a consultant talking about the decisions they were having to make mm. and how awful it was. Now we're kind of living in limbo. We're sort of in this anticipatory anxiety. What do you sort of say to all that kind of stuff? I think it's really difficult because you can see overseas how it's playing out and you can see how quickly that happened and how quickly things shifted. And so I think it's quite tricky not to get worried about that when, for example, you know, restrictions are, are lifted and then people seem to be quite lax here in Australia. Oh, my God, yeah. It's hard to not go, wow, in two weeks, are we going to have a flare-up? Are we going to have this happening? If you're working in that kind of environment and you know that that's a possibility and that's what your colleagues overseas are going through, it's, yes, it, it might be out of proportion to what you're seeing day-to-day at the moment, but I don't know that it is an irrational... Well, I, what I was going to yeah, say was, you know? what I was going to say, it's stressful. Yeah. You know, so it's stressful thinking that that's what you might have to deal with. Mm. And it, it would be unusual for a lot of clinicians to have to deal with that in their work career. I'm kind of thinking about what time a medical professional would have to treat a colleague and probably it would be in circumstances where there aren't many medical professionals or it's a specialized condition. It's a specialized yep. condition, or you're in an environment like a war environment, or something like that, where yep. you have to care for people. It's it's not day to day. It's a bit like us having distance from our clients. We we expect that to be able to get through it. Yeah, and the whole idea of lack of resources. Mm. You know, medical systems lack of resources is a common feature. You talk about systems that are being well resourced, but there's never ever perfectly resourced mm. i mean that's that's the nature of the world and we kind of get around that but the level at which we cannot treat these people because we don't have the equipment mm. or the drugs or whatever that is unusual in the in the western world yeah and and probably really frustrating that thing of knowing okay this person needs a ventilator or this person needs this I know what they need. I know what would help keep them going, Mm. but I can't provide it. There's a different frustration to that than I don't know how to help this person. Yeah. And I I think that that would be what I kind of gleaned from the conversations was people were worried that they were going to be put into that position. Mm. You know, and I think depending on the kind of person you are, a lot of doctors, there'd be a group of doctors where they wouldn't worry about it because it wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the sort of very... Real Focus abil- on the day-to-day. Yeah, there's that real, you know, ability to not get too anxious about stuff. I guess I would think about it, like a low emotional reactivity score mm. if you were to rate, get them to rate on a rating scale or something. Mm. But I think there would be a group where that would be difficult for them to think about anxiety-provoking. I mean, I think about having to go into that situation, that would be... Be terrifying. I, well, I mean, it could be potentially terrifying or it could be potentially simple and mm. like, well, we just have to do this stuff and we just get through it. But you wouldn't know until the wind started blowing as whether you the tree was going to fall over. Mm. And I think it links to those concerns about the after effects for doctors as well. 
that, you know, even the ones who are able to put some of that aside and, and keep going about what happens when the dust starts to settle and when things settle down, what happens to their mental health mm. or what comes up for them then. Yep. So, yeah, yeah, well, doctors are at high risk, right? So we talked about this probably pretty early days on the pod about doctors in training, mm. but doctors are at high risk of mental health problems. The short, short answers around that as to why are around high load, high mm. pressure, lack of support, a, a culture where people are not allowed to take time off. Mm. And there was a case early on in Australia where a GP had gone to work after being in the United States and had worked for a few days and then had got swabbed mm. and didn't even meet the department guidelines for a swab for COVID mm. and then had returned a positive test. And then the health minister in our state had sort of gone ballistic about how did this doctor work and this doctor had only had a sniffle mm. and there was this huge outpouring of anger from the medical community around the fact that doctors are constantly required to be at work when in any other job they wouldn't. Mm. And, you know, so I read some, oh, you know, just out, like just bizarre stories about a doctor having to work even though she'd lost her voice mm. but there was they were like no no you have to work yeah you know just like so just incredible so i think and then also i think doctors are very perfectionistic yeah. not used to failing yeah and so they're less good at coping with the interpersonal crises mm. as well so so i mean they're 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 in high they're in high pressure and also there's been some um more recently some high profile suicides of doctors mm. now I would be, I think the media's been very quick to attribute blame for the suicides for the fact of what they work in. Mm. I would caution against doing that because you can't go and ask the person who would. No. Why they did it. Mm. But I was worried and I contacted a few doctors Mm -hmm. and said beforehand, like, you know, I'm worried uh, if you need some support. You know where to find me. You know where to find me. Mm. Yeah. So what, what are your kind of thoughts around that? Yeah, I think it's already a pressure cooker kind of environment and then you add this and you add the fear for yourself and for people around you. You add all of that personal layer and then worry for your patients and even just the thing I can imagine of dealing with something that you haven't dealt with before and that there isn't a standard treatment ready to go. That would all be really frightening and unsettling. And I think that, you know, while my initial response to hearing if people are feeling suicidal or anything like that is always to link with a health professional or someone like that. I'm also aware that at the moment that's really difficult, Mm. especially for the clinicians that are working with COVID in areas where, you know, they're working really long, long days. And the distress that people are expressing is really understandable. Yeah. And I don't feel like there's an easy answer. I agree with you that there's never one cause of suicide. It's very complicated. It's very complicated. And even for mental health conditions, it's really multifaceted. But I think this is adding an extra layer of pressure that the system really hasn't been built to support at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, on the best of times, I guess our point is that that doesn't, it's not very good at supporting it. No. And then you add something as complicated. One of the factors I was thinking about, which is there was systems change Mm. within the hospital. So what I mean by that is that it's not just, oh, okay, we're dealing with virus. It's just that there was just this constant stream of changes within the Mm. hospital or in a medical sitting uh, service. 
Community health as well. Community health. Yeah, everywhere. Right, which as they should and, and hats off to management teams for having to respond and, you know, each week, you know, they were having to change things. But if you're a worker trying to keep pace with that, that's kind of stressful because yeah. you're trying to do that in in amongst. So like one week I came in, we had to be wearing face shields. Mm-hmm. The next week we came in and said, actually, you don't have to be wearing them at your desk. Yeah. Right. And that's that's a weird thing to kind of having to keep abreast of the entire time. It's that extra cognitive and emotional load yeah. that your day-to-day routines are disrupted over and over again. You get into a habit. If you're always expected to wash your hands before you see a client or something like that, you get into a routine of doing that. That's fine. Mm. But it's when you add an extra step to that or then take that away that then we all get thrown by those changes to routine and find it quite confusing. Like there were lots of conversations in my workplace in the early days of like, hang on a minute, are we supposed to be separate from one another or did hr say today that it was more hand washing training but i did that last month but you know there was lots of confusion yeah and it's when you think that the consequence is going to be high for getting that wrong yeah yeah that's what i was going to say so it's someone's changing the way you enter your statistics in at work might not have that bigger consequence right Mm. but getting something wrong and potentially infecting the whole department yeah. yeah, not so good, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I guess we're really what we're talking about is pressure. And I mm. think that a lot of healthcare workers have had to deal with pressure. And if you're an anxious person, then you probably, and you're working in a, in a health service or something, you probably have worked out how to do that. Mm. You probably worked out how to manage your own worries about working, whether that's, you know, your personal performance or whether it's your patients or or whatever it might be. And if you're employed and managing to be employed, you probably manage that, mm. right? And then you get something, I'm trying to think, there was a science, science fiction writer who had this great term for like a out of context, out of context event basically, mm. So, basically, which is a global pandemic, like we haven't lived through that. Mm. And then suddenly you go like, oh my gosh. Now some people are going to cope actually cope better mm. in that environment like they'll there's something about them that makes makes them kind of get excited and kind of like yep flick into action and there are people who really struggle with that mm. so and there'll be people who have been able to cope and had strategies that worked and things that calm them down that just go out the window when their stress goes past a certain point yeah and then it comes back in and yeah. then you get these interesting work environments where some staff will get extremely frustrated with how people are being anxious mm. and other other staff will get annoyed with the fact that people are not being anxious enough. Yeah. So it is really complicated. Mm. The other thing I was thinking about, Amy, was there's been a lot of writing in the oncology world, oncology Twitter, there's a real concern about drop in new cases of cancer. Mm. So, and people basically not presenting yeah, Dr. Sharma, who was one of the people who contributed, mm. has a great post about the fact that people should be presenting to their doctor if they're sick. Yeah. Don't be avoiding going to the doctor. The same in paediatrics. It's dropped. Yep. Yeah. In, in a way that it never has before. And, and so the pro- so you might think, oh, well, you know, is that big a deal? For things like oncology or vague complaints that then investigation happens and it's a, and it's a tumor, mm. the difference between detecting it early and detecting it less early can be the difference between successful treatment Mm. and um, having to have 
non-curative treatment. So, like, as in, you won't survive. Yeah. So and I think we, so we talked about it on a couple of our other COVID pods about how the early messages in Australia definitely were don't seek medical help unless it's necessary. And yeah. so I think people have really hung on to that idea that doctors are busy and that they shouldn't bother them. Yeah. Uh, and then we're seeing a lot of untreated conditions. Yeah. And I think, and I think for some doctors, they're worried about that. They mm. carry that around in their head. Yeah. So as in like, what's happening to this group of people? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. This added pressure of, okay, so I need to run my role in this COVID environment, but then also I need to be convincing people who are reluctant to come into the service Mm. or I need to get them to do medical tests in this environment. It's, It's just much more complicated from a, you know, when patients are isolated and then have trouble getting in. Mm. Or, you know, the, we would have interpreters yeah. to come to a consult when someone can't speak English, but then we can't do that. Mm. So you have to use phone interpreters, and, and which is it's commonplace, but it's less... More difficult. It's more difficult. And then what if you're doing with telehealth? Mm. You know, so, so you, can, you can sort of instantly see how the pressure can add up for people. Mm. Another pressure people have talked about is that they're concerned if their clients or patients aren't being honest about you know, how healthy they are, whether they've had any symptoms, their behaviour, things like mm. that. Is that something you've come across? Yeah. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. So, yep, we've had a revision to our guidelines around face-to-face contact mm-hmm. and use of PPE because there was a, a small outbreak in this particular area and people have not been as are forthcoming about that ex- exposure to that. Mm. So, and for whatever reason, yes, look, I know, th- and I don't want to ascribe or subscribe. I never quite know. Subscribe? Subscribe. Let's go subscribe. Negative intentions to that. There's lots of reasons why people... Ascribe. Ascribe. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know where your sentence was going. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, yeah, so and I, I think it's interesting doctors... And healthcare workers, there's a lot of frustration mm. around people who are not quarantining properly, mm. not obeying a lockdown properly, and not being open about what their exposure is properly. Yeah. You know, even presenting to a GP and then someone saying, oh, by the way, look, I've got cold and flu symptoms. And mm. I was like, well, you should have called us before you came in and told us. Yeah. You know, and that person might not have thought to do that. But for the, for the doctor... That could, that's very stressful. Yeah. Whereas previously that wasn't stressful. Yeah, it really spikes spikes your anxiety. I th- I think it's a difficult one to deal with when people aren't upfront about things when they're asked directly as well. And I think that I think in Australia there's a bit of a laid back attitude of oh well it's you know coming into winter of course it's just a cold I won't bother to mention it or if I mention it then I won't be able to see mm. that health professional or things like that and so people are it's not too bad so i just won't mention when reception asks did you see did you see just this week the footage of josh frydenberg the australian treasurer yeah so just to like this is just the most frustrating thing so so the treasurer in the australian parliament is a fairly senior position it sort of seems to be like the number two in the government even if they're not actually the deputy prime minister Mm. right and Josh Frydenberg gave a speech in the middle of the parliament and the Prime Minister is sitting two metres away mm. watching and this guy was coughing 
coughing his guts up. The entire time. The entire time. And coughing into his hands. Mm. And, you know, he had to stop repeatedly to drink water, right? And and then they said, oh, out of an abundance of caution, he's been getting a COVID test. Now, I can tell you, if you worked in a health service, <laughs> you would not be allowed to walk in the door if you had that cough. No. And you wouldn't be being tested out of a, an abundance of caution. No. So, and it wouldn't be after you'd been in a room with 20 of your colleagues. And it wouldn't have been... And But also, like, say what you want about your political persuasion, mm. but I'm very keen to have a functioning government, even yes. if I do or do not particularly love their policies, mm. right? And so, it's incredibly irresponsible mm. of someone so senior to be doing that. Mm. And so, you know, you wonder what was going on in his head. He might be like, oh, I think, I, I think I've only got a cold. We don't know the history of the development of that cough, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But prudence demands that people go and get tested so um, it's I very so you can hear my frustration in it yeah yeah and when it's someone in the public eye as well it kind of adds to that perception of of oh maybe it's fine as well 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 particularly like i had i had two covid tests mm. and the second one i had a cough that was nowhere near as extreme as that yeah, yeah. And, and i knew exactly that it wasn't and the doctors were like we don't think it is mm. but this is what but, we do but this is what we're doing mm. and you go okay cool and i won't go to work so, And it's a really difficult conversation to have with people who have symptoms and don't want to be tested and have that reluctance, oh, oh it's just a cold, I don't need to worry about it. Like it's quite, a, it's quite a tricky conversation to have as a professional or personally yep. as well yep. of framing it in a way that's helpful and that contains some of your frustration if you're a person who's frustrated by that as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's a delicate yeah. Thing, but I, I feel like it often needs to be said, just a heads up, particularly in Australia where the requirements of what symptoms you need to have to be tested have been changing pretty quickly. So, so let's just talk about that. So like the parallels that come for me are around, I've had to suggest previously to patients, that symptom that you're reporting to me, mm. I think you should talk to your oncologist yeah. about. Right. Yeah. I'll notice something like a limp that a client will have or something like that or they'll be scratching a lot and then they'll go oh yeah i've got this rash or something yeah. and it, mm, I think yeah. it might be time to tell yeah see but, but see your one your ones that's not potentially life-threatening no. whereas i think my one is it's life-threatening like you sort of saying to somebody look you probably need to to talk to them about that or what have they said to you about that because that could be a sign of something mm. i mean i'm always very cautious about telling someone I think that it's a cancer recurrence because I don't, mm. like, what do no. I know? I don't know anything. So, but... But it's encouraging that but, openness with their treatment. But, but, it's, like, but it's sort yeah. of be saying, but it's more about, have you talked to them about that? Mm. And how come you haven't, mm. if they haven't? In some cases, oh, I just come up. But in other cases, like, oh, I'm worried about what that means. The other, the other thing I was thinking about is trying to convince people to do something when they don't believe in it. Mm. So, the, so the oncology example is someone being referred. I've had a couple of times where they've been referred and for hormone treatment post-breast cancer. Mm-hmm. So quick biology of breast cancer. So you can have certain types of breast cancer have hormone receptors on them. And they can be ER and PR positive, estrogen and progesterone, and HER2 positive. And so you can take things like tamoxifen, which puts women into menopause. And because the cancer cells get stimulated by the female hormones, right? And so Mm -hmm. if you 
reduce the hormones and you reduce then then the cancer isn't as stimulated so it's like it's like the hormones are fertilizing the cancer and helping mm. it grow is the analogy right and i've had a number of patients where they're like oh, i'm just gonna lead a stress-free life and the cancer won't come back mm. which is erroneous to begin with because a you can't live a stress-free life b yeah. stress doesn't cause cancer mm. or influence or cancer progression yeah. and c there's really extremely good evidence that taking this medication is a good idea now mm. it's not a psychologist's job to tell someone to take a medication or not mm. right it's about helping them make a good decision for themselves yeah. but so but it's sort of interesting your if you try and direct someone to this is what you've got to do mm that can backfire. Yeah. And so you have to take another approach, which is understanding why it is that they're acting the way that they are. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. Yeah. But that's hard to do when you're frustrated, like mm. like what you were saying. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And if it's something that can impact you as well, I think. Like I, I personally... <laughs> like if they're sitting across the desk from you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've noticed that my frustration with that side of things has dropped a fair bit since I've been doing telehealth. And I think it's that... <laughs> In my head, I'm not thinking, well, I now need to disinfect this entire office. Yeah. And I need to do all of these things to make sure that this is okay for myself and for my next client. Yeah. It's okay, well, we can talk through this and this isn't something that's a potentially direct harm to me. It doesn't activate that anxiety mm. side of it. I was like, much. oh, well, there goes my next half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like, yeah. you know, it could be as, as simple as that, really, mm. isn't it? Next yeah. one. We had a question from one of the doctors about working with people in quarantine and being concerned about patients' mental health. In Australia, if you get back from overseas or have had exposure, then you're expected to isolate for 14 days. Unless you're a billionaire. Unless you're a billionaire and then Which you do can, what you want. You can isolate in your own home, but mm. everyone else has been having to isolate in a hotel. Yeah. And then not be able to leave that hotel room or be able to go outside, anything like that. And the doctor that contacted us was quite concerned about how that conflicts with their ideas about mental health and about the importance of having fresh air and going into the sun and all of that thing. How do you respond to that? Yeah, difficult, right? Because it brings up guilt around being part of that system, you mm. know, sort of the, a system that's... Against uh, your ethics. And against yeah, your you know, knowledge. I kind of think about doctors working in detention centres where, because mm. Australia has this horrendous policy of locking up people who come to Australia by boat mm. and locking them up in prisons for years and years. Indefinitely. So it's it's horrendous in that in the mental health consequences, right? Mm. So uh, and being part of that uh, I guess the my reaction for the covid stuff is that you would hope that a short time wouldn't be 14 days quarantine. That's mm. would be uncomfortable, but you would hope that that would not be a permanently damaging scenario for mm. people and i guess i often think about guilt as in a good way to challenge that is to think about well, what good are you doing mm. and what's the you know what's the benefit of your role and how can you help those people you know you know what is it that you're doing is there anything else that you can be doing mm. but also not taking on full responsibility for a problem that is not necessarily it's a systemic problem. Well, yeah, it's not your it's not your fault that that person's in quarantine, mm. and it's not your fault that the system is not perfect. Mm. So I think it's about reducing that responsibility, and that reduces the guilt. But 
I think also kind of tolerating it and kind of going, you know what, it's kind of a bit sucky to be part of that and be mm. the face of that and you might be bearing the brunt of it mm. is, is what I would imagine. Is the, yeah. It's hard to be asked for help when you can't give them the help that they need. Mm, and absolutely. mental health care workers and medical workers have all had that experience. Mm, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Mm. So, so from hopefully a less depressing topic <laughs> to uh, something that's a bit more... I was going to say mundane. Maybe it's not mundane. Challenges with telehealth. How are you finding telehealth? Oh, it's a curious beast. Yeah. Especially doing it with kids. Yeah. So I do video sessions or phone sessions. Every now and then I have a program that allows for a whiteboard and a chat function. Yeah. And I think it's most challenging when kids discover that and then decide that they want to conduct their entire session through text. (laughs) (laughs) Or through drawing wow. or through emojis. Yeah, right. Uh, so you'll ask a question and they will respond with a series of emojis. That That's, um, yeah. You know what? That could make writing your notes up very quickly. You could just like copy, copy, and, paste. Pa- copy and paste the whole thing and just like stick it, whack it straight into the document. Done. Yeah. Notes I, done. One day I did find myself going like, when you say baboon nurse tree, are you meaning <laughs> <laughs> going, this is not helpful. But I think... I think in general, it's really hard losing those social cues, losing the in the moment stuff. A lot of my clients have really poor internet connections or are using their mobile phones. And so there's a lot of lag. There's a lot of me asking a question, then not knowing whether they've heard me or not. Yeah. Whether the look on their face is because their internet is frozen or they've opened up Minecraft on a separate screen yeah. or because there's something that's that's gone wrong yeah so i think i'm getting better at reading those cues but it's taken a lot of practice mm. i'm i think 55 days working from home as of this week it's been that long God. it's been that long so it's kind of getting there but i think the big challenge for psychologists and certainly it's come up a lot at work is risk so we work with a population that's quite unwell in australia there's community health and then there's in theory there's health services that deal with people who are more more unwell and perhaps need hospitalization or are unwell for many years our clients tend to fall between those two points yeah so we see people who have been unwell for most of their lives who have a lot of trauma substance stuff family violence all sorts of things and judging the risk over telehealth is really really hard and managing it as well exactly because you have to think about okay so if i try and call someone and they don't answer is it because they've got caught up with something their phone batteries is it something benign yep yep or is it that they've been hurt by their partner or their parent because my mind goes more to like what do i do if i'm doing telehealth with someone who's who then expresses that they're currently at risk. That yeah. That's the kind of... That's also you, an issue. Because if you're working with someone and they're in your office, mm. then it's still complicated, but it's a little bit easier. You can you can march them down to the yeah. ED and get them assessed by the psych yeah. team. Yeah, you can flag yeah. with someone that you need some extra help in your office. Yeah. And that's certainly a problem. It's also a problem if they're at risk and then they hang up. Uh, you also can't know where they are with mobile phones. <laughs> so yeah. it's been a really big process of trying to figure out how to manage those different risks also you can't know who else is in the room so Mm. if you've got environment where there's you know risk to kids or risk to partners or things like that you can't always know whether someone else is listening or watching what you're doing yeah whereas for my clients often they know that they come in to my room and they know that 
mum, dad, sibling, whatever, can't hear them. Yeah. So we've had to come up with some creative ways of flagging when they're at risk. Code words, symbols on the whiteboard, particular text messages, all sorts of things that we're all doing in different ways to try and judge it. Yeah, so what I was thinking about is that doing telephone consults Mm. and telehealth. So I've mainly done telephone consults Mm. and I've done a few telehealth. And I'm quite comfortable doing telephone consults, to be honest. My sort of first volunteer therapy job was a little bit of telephone counselling. It's probably also the cohort because yours yeah. is far more verbal than yeah. mine. Yeah, yeah, I've got like older, older like yeah. I, live, I work with adults. Yeah. But what you have to be is very deliberate. Mm. So I think what you're talking about is being deliberate about how you manage risk in a much more thoughtful way. Mm. And what I noticed with therapy is I have to be much more deliberate in the questions that I ask. Mm. So probing. So what's that about? Oh, so I can't judge what you're feeling, what you're looking like. So tell me when you talk about that, what's the feeling that comes up Mm. and having to be really direct. Yeah. And what's interesting is actually, I think it makes you a little bit of a better therapist because I think I do a lot of things by feel and intuition. Yeah. And you have to check more. You have to kind of encourage that reflection a bit more. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas, whereas, whereas now I'm having to do it and be much more, make sure I'm getting it all correctly. Mm. And then that actually makes me a bit better of a therapist, I think. So, yeah. which is interesting. It is. But yeah, it's, it can feel a, little bit, feel a little bit more stilted. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's one of those times when the importance of having good supervision and enough of it. And having enough support is really important as well because you are physically distant from other people and from your clients. And hanging up the phone when someone's at risk or when something's gone off feels entirely different to being in an office and being able to go and knock on a colleague's door Mm. or something like that. I mean, it's not uncommon that you might have a phone call. At work. At work. No. That's that's where someone's at risk. but But there are other people around who you can then refer to. Yeah, that's right. What about for you? You've had to do consults with a mask on. Yep. Or with clients with masks on as well. So what's your question? So how do you go... Like I'm assuming those social cues would be disrupted with that as well. So actually what's interesting is the couple of consults I've had where... So we wear these like clear plastic face shield. Mm. I'll put a... We'll put a photo up. Uh, It's kind of... I look kind of hilarious. And also Mm. like it says face shield... Yeah, like, like in case like, you're going to use it incorrectly. Yeah, like so. There's like it's like clear, I want you to imagine an A4 sized bit of plastic, maybe a bit yeah. wider, and it's got a bit of foam up the top and a headband. Where the foam is, that's the bit that touches your forehead. Mm. It's got printed on the other side, face shield, which is just so strange. Mm. Anyway, so that they're clear, mm. but I've previously done consults where yeah, gowned up and you have surgical masks over. Mm. And so I guess, I guess, again, the patient, if the patient's wearing a mask mm. and then there's, if you're wearing a mask. So more often than not, I've, my experience has been, I'm wearing the mask. Mm. Then again, you have to be more deliberate. You feel a bit awkward, but once you start doing it and you remember to start doing it, you adapt to it pretty quickly, mm. I think. But one of the mistakes that people make, doctors make, mm. trainee psychologists make, allied health people make is that they don't verbally acknowledge the emotions of somebody. Yeah. And when you do that, you find that the communication improves. So mm. what do I mean by that? Active listening. Mm. The So Amy, you're saying that X happened and that's making you feel Y. Mm. Or Amy, you're saying that 
you're feeling Y mm. and that's because of X. Yeah. Now, I've had that done to me. Mm. I've had that done to me multiple times. Yeah. And I know that that's what people are doing to me and yet I still feel better. Yeah. So Because you feel heard. Yeah. yeah. Because someone's clarified with you. Yeah. And when you do that for someone, the, the, the next sentence that someone says back to you mm. after that is the most interesting sentence. Yeah. And so it's a matter of being more deliberate and doing that. And the same way that we're much more cognizant about, okay, have I washed my hands? Mm. Have I, I've touched something, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go and wash it. You've got to be more verbally acknowledging and checking in at the moment. So Makes sense. So that's the end of our list of issues that we'd come up with. Mm. And thanks to the doctors that had contributed to that. That's been, it's been incredibly helpful. And we hope that it's enjoyable. We just wanted to finish off our COVID pod with just a brief discussion around, I guess, societal level responses to COVID-19. Because I have a few thoughts. And I'm <laughs> sure you have a few thoughts. I do. Did you want to go first or shall I? You go first. Okay, so my thoughts are based on some news reports that have been happening, predominantly coming out of the United States, mm-hmm. where there seems to be like a huge amount of denial and a huge amount of anger. Mm. So, denial being, this isn't a problem, this is a hoax, yeah. right? And anger about the fact that people are locked down mm. and I want my freedom back, right? I and have I, things that I want to do. I, think, I need to get my hair cut. I have rights. I have rights. I have rights. Mm. So, I've, I personally, as an Australian, we don't have this culture around constitutionally no. rights, right? I, f- I find this yeah, just immensely perplexing mm. and, and anger-inducing for me to watch it. Especially when you see the, the number of cases and how, how quickly it's spreading as well. It's As an external person, it, it's baffling. Yeah. So, I mean, I kind of go back to that... Stages of grief, Kubler Ross thing that people have heard me talk about, like denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance are mm. all kind of common emotions, kind of common. I don't think stages is the right way to talk about it, but that's what these processes are going on. Denial about the seriousness of the problem is uniform yeah. across serious illnesses, particularly in cancer. Mm. But I did a placement in spinal ward where people had to come off a motorbike and can't walk again. Mm. And every single patient believes they can walk again. Yeah. Whereas no one ever in the world has ever yeah. recovered in that way. And so that's but kind it's of... part of the process. It's part of the process. Yeah. And let's not get into the news media hmm. stoking that stuff. But it's it's been really, really interesting to watch that. It's been less so in Australia. Hmm. It's been a little bit by sort of wealthy individuals or people, I guess, in desperate situations around their work hmm. and stuff like that. The other thing that is really, really frustrating me about this stuff is the denial about vaccines. So, at the moment, the news media du jour topic is when the vaccine comes available, it needs to be available to everybody, Mm. which is a sentiment I agree on. (laughs) But, (laughs) But what frustrates me about that is there's a belief that there's going to be a vaccine. Mm, there's an assumption that there'll be an effective one and often that it's going to be quite soon. Yes. And this yeah. is, so this is a process that happens with serious illness, with oncology, where people will be having palliative treatment. So treatment that's not going to cure them mm. or has extremely low success rate. And people are like, oh yeah, so when I finish this treatment and I get better, I'm going back to work. Mm. This is really common. So you can understand that from a, this helps people get through by believing that. And 
you know, I have a lot, often have discussions around, you know, respecting denial, respecting avoidance. But I think it's a sign of great, what well, it gives me great concern at the moment because it's a sign that there's large portions of the population that think that everything's going to be okay mm. and that they don't have to adjust. And I think the concern is both that longer term adjustment, but also just how many people are then doing that day-to-day stuff to keep themselves safe and to keep other people safe. Yeah, you know, well, If you don't believe it's a problem, yeah. then... Then you, you'll be lax. You'll be lax. Yeah. So yeah. I think that that's, that really worries me. Mm. Uh, so Whereas here it's different. I mm. think that Australia has a... We have an interesting approach to things where I feel like we're more laid back and a bit of that, you know, you give us an inch and we'll take a mile in our approach to things. Realistically, I think it comes from our penal colony roots. So yeah. if you, you don't know the history of Australia, <laughs> Australia was founded by the British and it was a penal colony. So they sent all these criminals that stolen like loads of bread yeah. and sent them to Australia, you know, like ridiculous. And my thought hmm. is what you were saying, which is the we sort of respect rules. We So we really abide by rules, but... If the rules aren't clear... Yeah, we'll exploit them, yeah. So, for example, in Australia, there was a amnesty for guns to hand in all of your... Firearms. All your firearms. After a after, mass shooting, yeah. Yeah, after a mass shooting. And it was taken up pretty quickly and was pretty widespread. It was, it was something that wasn't optional. It was just, this is what is going to happen. This is what you need to do. It was you know, Australia-wide policy and everybody followed followed that and as a general rule i think that when there's a clear guideline and there's a clear thing of this is what you're going to do then people follow it and at our strictest lockdowns with this people have largely followed it particularly at the start and then as their people started talking about that there was this looming date of may 11th where things were potentially going to be relaxed as soon as there was an announcement that this announcement was coming then I noticed that people then started relaxing some of those things or mm. going, well, we're practically there anyway, Yeah. so I may as well. And then now the rules have dropped a little bit, but what's happened is that people seem to be falling in one camp or another where they're just going with it and pushing it as far as they can. So yeah. Well, I mean, I went out today on a run and I saw a lot of people out and then I went to the supermarket on the way home I had a mask on mm. and I was one of the few people on and I was just like what like are we getting a second wave <laughs> well yeah. that's yeah that's what I'm worried about <sighs> and I think that there are a bunch of people who are worried about it and who are yeah. talking about how we've only opened things up because we now have enough hospital beds yeah. to be able to cope with a second wave yeah. and then there's a bunch of people who are going well who I can now have friends over to my house so so in, it's a really difficult so, so, thing so in public health there's the screw model and the spring model hmm. right so when they think about public health messages right is it like a screw once you screw a screw in the screw stays in or is it like a spring where you have to continually exert pressure to squish the spring and I think it's pretty much a spring, particularly in this in this moment. Yeah. And I think there'll be some interesting writing down the track about public health messages and the effectiveness in COVID nineteen. Yeah, because uh, some of them have been learned. so confusing. For, yeah, and but what we've learned about human behaviour mm. and what happens. So, yeah, just a little diversion into <laughs> public health there mm. for you. We hope you found this interesting. 
Shall we take a break? Yes, let's take our last COVID-related break. We will see you soon. Woke up this morning I suddenly realised We're all in this together I started smiling Cause you were smiling And we're all in this together I'm made of atoms You're made of atoms And we're all in this together And long division doesn't matter cause we're all in this together Amy has bought us a mandarin negroni from Atticus Finch. Yeah. It's a bar in Melbourne that are doing home delivery cocktails. Mm. Cheers. Happy days. It smells good. It's good. Now can you see why? (laughs) (laughs) Hmm. All right, the break. I was was too busy enjoying the negroni. I'm also enjoying the bottle. Describe the bottle. The bottle is... It reminds me of a mix between a pirate and a genie. Glass. It has a handle. A round bowl, thin neck, and then a handle. Wouldn't and be, a cork. Yeah, cork. And it wouldn't be out of place in Professor Snape's potions store. And you know what I was thinking about? Probably would have been in our first COVID episode. You told me that the problem that I was having with my dishes could be solved by having a sort of belt where I attached various things to it. <laughs> you know, a spork. Yep. A cup, etc. I think that this handle is almost built to be attached to a carabiner. So this is a part of the show where we say thanks for listening. <laughs> Apparently. And we don't jiggle and I, around the And a- Amy the goes off on tangents and I desperately try and get through. While looking both delighted and frustrated at the same time in equal measure. <laughs> so yeah, we hope you've been enjoying listening to the pod recently. And mm. if you've been getting into the back issues of it, then we always see that people do listen to... Our older episodes, mm. Obsessive Compulsive Personality. Yeah, uh, that's been a popular one. And people searching for, uh, what was it? Vivacious. Vivacious Histrionics, <laughs> for some reason. Yeah. Shout out to all of you Vivacious Histrionics. Yeah. Um, and people who also listen to the Borderline Personality episodes as well. Yeah. And Avoidant PD, so which is like social anxiety. And psychopathy, which makes sense because everyone's interested in the dark. So, stuff. where would you be able to find those episodes, Amy? Ah, you would find them at twoshrinkspod.com yep. forward slash podcast if we're going to be specific. Oh. And you will also find their information about how to contact us. You can find thing, information about us. You can see a Coping with COVID page as well where we've got a bunch of resources. And if you wanted to look for something in particular, you can see our episodes by topic which is also quite satisfying. So if there's a particular disorder you're looking for, see if it's there. If it's not, contact us and say, Oi, why haven't you worked your way through the DSM by now? <laughs> and you can do that at twoshrinkspod at gmail.com or Twitter yep. at twoshrinkspod. 
Yeah, definitely. So yeah, we're always consistent. Up, we're always up for feedback. So mm. we like hearing from people. Yeah. And yeah, you're you're looking kind of lost. No, I'm just <laughs> surprised we managed to get through this break relatively. I handed the baton over, and then you've actually run with it for a change. Do you know what it is? It's the Negroni. It's the Negroni, but it's also the facial expression. Like sometimes you hand it over, looking at me like I'm certain you're gonna screw this up, and I just go game on. Tushing's pod. <laughs> Actually, can I have a refill? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> just so you know, there was a break between the end of the break and uh, the refill. I Not didn't just much. neck the, mm-hmm. and it, that. That's mm-hmm. enough. That's fine. Things we came across. Yeah. This is where we... Uh, talk shit. Talk shit. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. How would you... I always describe it. You describe it. What do we do? Under normal circumstances, we would talk about something that we'd stumbled across or something that we'd wondered about, yeah. like something weird mm. psychology-wise. But since we've been doing... My, right my, no, my favorite was when you'd had a song stuck in your head for, for like a week, <laughs> week, and then you found some research to back up. Why? Back up why. Yeah. It's that kind of thing of, you know, making ourselves feel more sane. Uh, all research. the time that you had a really bad hangover and then you found some research on hangovers. <laughs> yeah. 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 Do you know the one that I haven't included because I thought it would be too much of a sore point? Mm-hmm. At one point, you were really complaining about being sick, and I looked up an article on man flu, and I thought, well, we're just going to record a pod while you were sick, and I thought, no, this is just too bad. Sexist. <laughs> sexist. That's what I knew you were going to say, and then you were going to sulk, and I'd have to finish the pod alone. So, yeah, sometimes restraint. It, Normally, that's that. That gives you a flavour of the things you came across. But. COVID-wise, we've been asking one another questions about COVID that are kind of light. What's your question? What are you going to miss about lockdown? Pajama pants at work. Really? Yeah. So, I very much have been doing top half professional, bottom half leggings or pajama pants. Mm -hmm. I tried bottom half professional, but it just didn't work for me when I knew that the option was right there. (laughs) (laughs) It's made me be far more professional on the top half. Oh, okay. And right. just so, like, I'll you know, I'll do my hair. I'll put on so some you, makeup. You've got like a hundred hundred points of professionalism, but it, it's from waist up rather than fifty fifty. Is that exactly. What you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. Or seventy five twenty five. Yeah. yeah. Like and I mean, I know a lot of people have been saying that they're upset about the idea of returning to clothes that they can't move in when work goes back properly, mm. like the people who are working in their pajamas. To be fair, as a child psychologist, all of my clothes have to be stretchy enough to <laughs> crawl in. So. That Amy and I work. off mic have a lot of discussions about Amy cleaning slime out of her work clothes. So <laughs> it's a real problem with knitwear. But <laughs> I think that's if you've got any tips on removing slime and knitwear, two shrinkspot at yeah. gmail.com. Yes, I would greatly appreciate it. <laughs> so I think that's that's what I'll miss. I'll miss being comfortable when I'm working. Okay. What will you miss? Well, so I haven't had that. And no, I did you've had to go in. I had to go in mm. and I did buy a tracksuit. And some tracksuit pants and a and a hoodie. Meth dealer. And it definitely looked like definitely looked like a meth dealer. Yeah. I have thoughts on that, but they're not appropriate for the pod. <laughs> um so I'd probably be making much more money than I do with a therapist. Anyway, mm. uh, you know, more risk of jail, but anyway. Potato, potato. 
That's not the right thing to say in response to that. So, what would I miss? Probably, I'm going to miss driving in no traffic. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. So, if you're someone that maybe likes to be early, but is actually not very good at being early, Mm. and frequently you're running across the school ground as the bell goes, maybe drive... You push, you know, like in Maverick, you're pushing the envelope, yeah. uh, Top Gun style, yeah. getting to school on time. Mm-hmm. It's it's a dream yeah. driving in lockdown. So I'm going to miss that. What were you, what were you going to ask me? I was going to ask the moment that you knew that you'd been in lockdown too long, and uh, and I and I mean this in a amusing way, not in a crying on the couch yeah, kind of like way. Something gross. Yeah. No, I think it was that there was a period. I think it was, it was pretty early on mm. where anytime I saw a person of the opposite sex, <laughs> I was like, hey, how you doing? Like, and they were like, hey, how you doing? Like, and it wasn't like, like sleazy. It was just like, I really appreciate that there is another, <laughs> they exist. another human of, an, of the opposite sex that's just here. So what about for you? Mine, I feel like, I don't know if it's more or less embarrassing than that. It was the day when I had a rush of anxiety when I realized that the same Uber Eats driver was delivering my dinner <laughs> as my breakfast. <laughs> what was his name? Oh, hang on. Well, and while Amy's looking that up, she has acknowledged that she has actually also seen him on a number of other occasions since that time. <laughs> That's not fair. <laughs> I'm not going to say what his name was, but I will say... That it was really nice to see him on another occasion <laughs> after the d- double date. No, no, I will say that I remembered him because his moustache was remarkable. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yep. This is the rare occasion on the pod where Amy is embarrassed. <laughs> Great. You're enjoying this too much. Uh, And I reckon that's a good way to end our Coping with COVID series. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. We've noticed there's been some good numbers of people listening. Mm. So if you've got any thoughts, comments, questions, do contact us. Please rate, review the show. We are going to have some fun with the next couple of episodes. Mm. We're going to turn away from COVID. We're going to turn away from seriousness. We are going to lean in to 13-year-old Hunter's wildest dreams. So... You know the Harry Potter podcast that we did? Think that, but not Amy driving that. Uh, stay Step in. <laughs> stay tuned to the feed. You will see what we mean soon enough. See you soon.